going through 1 Samuel, and uh, Stevie did 1 Samuel chapter 5. That means I need to do 1 Samuel chapter 6. We are following the journey of the Ark of the Covenant. So in uh, 1 Samuel 4, the, the bad guy, the main bad guys right now in the story are these people called the Philistines. So the Israelites are God's people. God chose the Israelites out of all the nations of the world. God gave the Israelites their law, his law, and he also told them, look, I'm going to choose you. And he had promised the father of the Israelites, Abraham. He said, listen, Abraham, through your seed, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the families of the earth. So the Israelites were basically this nation that God planted basically in the middle of the world to be an example to the other nations as to how to follow the one true God because all of us had strayed from him. That was the job of Israel. Moses delivers the Israelites from the Egyptians. They then receive the commandments of God and then they receive this special case basically called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant contained um, the commandments and all that good stuff. And it also was essentially one of the carriers of the presence of God among the people. God gave very specific rules as to how the Ark of the Covenant was to be handled and maintained. Namely, that only the Levitical priests were to carry it and they had these special poles and everything. Well, when they were crossing into the Promised Land, there was a man named Joshua who was a warrior leader of the people of Israel. And God shows up to Joshua and says, listen, I'm going to destroy this city, Jericho. What you're going to do is you're going to take the Ark of the Covenant and march around there seven times. Anybody here remember that story? So they do. And the walls of Jericho fall and they have this great victory. Fast forward a couple hundred years. The people of Israel completely turn their back on God. They start worshiping other gods. They start doing all this craziness. They have a bad guy named the Philistines. The Philistines start attacking them in 1 Samuel 4, so they go to war. Well, they start losing. So they regroup, and it says in 1 Samuel 4, it says they went to the elders. Now, this is interesting because in, uh, in the beginning of 1 Samuel, there's this man named Samuel. He's a prophet. And it says about, about Samuel that God never let one of his words fall to the ground, meaning everything Samuel said about God or prophesied came true. So you would figure, okay, look, we're getting tore up by these Philistines. Who would you go to to figure out why? They don't go to Samuel. They don't pray. They go to their leaders. They go to their elders. So they go to their leaders, their elders, uh, their senators, and their congressmen. They say, yo, we are losing. Elders say, we have an idea. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant and march it into the battle lines of the Philistines. Why? Well, last time when we were in trouble, Joshua did it, and the trick worked. There's only one problem. When Joshua did it, God commanded him to do it. Joshua sought the Lord, and he heard from God. But see, these leaders had nothing to do with God. They could care less. The ark then, this holy thing that God made for them, basically became like a rabbit's foot. It was a magic trick. So they take the ark, and they march it into the, to the battle lines of the Philistines. Well, the Philistines turn around and destroy them. There's a signal, brother. There's a signal. Now, here's a question. Why did God allow the ark 
his glory to be captured by these pagan Philistines. What was going on in Israel at the time? Oh, my good friend here is going to read us something. All right, Psalm strength into captivity is glory into the enemy's hands. What's that talking about? The ark. Right? So he, he allows the ark to be taken by the Philistines because they had high places. Now a high place was where you would go to worship the gods. Right? This was, this was paganism. They would, the, the gods were up in heaven so what they would do is they'd say okay well you know, the gods are up in heaven, we're on earth, so let's go to the highest place possible and set up a shrine. And then when they would go to worship God, they'd have these carved images to worship God, both of which were a violation of God's commandments. Right? So here are the people of Israel. They're in trouble. They're fighting the Philistines. And instead of seeking God and repenting of their sin, they take the Ark of the Covenant as a magic trick and basically blackmail God and say, well, you're not going to let us lose now. We took the Ark of the Covenant. God says, oh, yeah? So the Philistines now have the Ark. And Stevie told us last week, they take the Ark and put it in front of the, their, their, beside their God, Dagon. Now, here's something to understand about paganism at the time. When we say God, we believe there's only one true and real God that is more powerful than any being in the universe. That is not how the pagans understood the gods at the time. The pagans understood that there was a God of the sea, a God of the land, God of the trees, God of the fruit, whatever. So when they capture Yahweh and put him next to Dagon, they're saying, okay, we have a God, Dagon, and the Israelites now have a God, Yahweh, and Dagon and Yahweh are going to kind of get along and start working for us. That's how it went. The gods now start working for us. Well, the next day, Dagon is face down in front of um, the Ark of the Covenant, which obviously the symbology is clear, namely that Yahweh is more powerful than Dagon. Well, the next thing they do is they set the Dagon back up, and the next morning now, Dagon's head, and what is it, Stevie's hands? His head and his hands are crushed, right? They're broken, and it's just his trunk is left, right? This is communicating to them that Yahweh is greater than Dagon. He crushed him. He beat him up. Now, at this point, you would think to yourself, okay, well, this means that the Philistines are now going to say, we need to worship this God, right? Wrong. What happens is, there is, <laughs> what was it? Uh, yeah. They start getting afflicted with these uh, tumors, or um, as Stevie said, with his great research, um, these tumors were hemorrhoids. There's nothing you can... They're hemorrhoids. Very humiliating uh, uh, plague. So these people start getting plagued with hemorrhoids. So what they do, instead of saying, you know what, maybe this God Yahweh is, is somebody we should follow, they say, we need to get him out of here. They send him to another city. Well, that doesn't work either. So the Philistines go to their leaders. Again, they go to their politicians and say, look, we got a problem. I'm going to fix it. And the, the solution of the leaders was just keep sending the thing from town to town. Let's not address the issue. Let's just move the issue elsewhere. You know, I grew up 
You know, I mean, God bless my parents, but, you know, we had issues growing up. And instead of us addressing the issue, what we would do is move. We got an issue in Maine, let's move to Florida. We got a problem in Florida, we're gonna move to New Jersey. Oh, we got a problem in New Jersey, we're gonna move to New York. We just moved all around, all the time, right? This is what people do. When they're faced with an issue, or they're faced with the consequences of their actions, instead of facing up to it, we just kind of move. Or we run, or whatever. So this is what they do. They send the ark all over the place. Well, everywhere they went, everywhere the ark went, there were more tumors. I'm just gonna say tumors, Stevie. <laughs> Everywhere the ark went, there were more tumors. Now, now look, here's something that's interesting. The Israelites are faced with a problem. They don't go to God. They don't go to the prophet, who is basically the mouthpiece of God. They went to their leaders. The Philistines are faced with a problem. They don't go to Dagon, because really, listen, Dagon doesn't listen to prayers, because they knew Dagon wasn't really real, okay? This is why when he fell, they had to help him up, right? What they do is they go to their leaders, right? It says the lords of their town, right? Now, now this is particularly relevant to us, right? Because our country is in shambles. And what happens when your country is in shambles in America every four years? Right? I was just watching... Uh, uh, good old Bernie Sanders there and Hillary last night, they had this debate, and I guess there's going to be a Republican debate, and this is what happens. This is the narrative. The politician stands up and says, our country's in shambles. We got tumors. The country's all over the place. Everything is horrible. I have the solution. And this is what we do. Now listen, the, the Israelites are God's people. The Philistines, you would expect them to go to their politicians. It's, that's all they know. But the Israelites and the Philistines, when they were faced with a problem, did the exact same thing. And, you know, I, I mean, look, I see it in myself. Every four years, we, we get caught up in this, even as Christians. We are approaching what's happening in our country in ways very similar to even unbelievers. Like, you see a problem in our nation or even in our city. Our first response is not to pray. We want to talk to our congressman or we want to make sure we elect the right person. You listen to some Christians sometimes. It's, it's like a life or death thing, whether or not we elect the right politician. But look, if we can have influence over the political uh, environment, sure, let's do it. But that's not the ultimate solution for our for our country. You know why? Because politi political issues are not the ultimate problem in our country. The ultimate issue in Philistia and Israel and America is spiritual. So, Israelites, they go to their, their politicians. The, uh, the uh, Philistines, they go to their politicians. That doesn't work. Now let's look at the solution. 1 Samuel chapter 6. The Ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. So seven months, they're playing uh, merry-go-round with the Ark of the Covenant, and everybody's getting tore up by this thing, right? And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? And now the Philistines are getting a little wiser, at least. Remember, the Philistines are people who do not know the true God. But the, the, the solution that the politicians had given them wasn't working. It was going on for seven months, these tumors. And so they said, man, this is a disaster. 
we need to go to the religious leaders. So they go to the priests and the diviners. Now, these people's job in Philistia, their job was to talk to the gods and figure stuff out. They were the religious experts at the time. That was their job. So the Philistines look at each other and they go, look, we can't go back to the leaders because they're just going to tell us to just send the thing all over the place and that's not working. Let's go to our religious leaders. So they go to their religious leaders and they say, okay, what are we going to do with this thing because it's tormenting us? Look what he says. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. You catch that? He said, so the priests get together and they said, look, we need to send this thing back to Israel, but we cannot send it away empty handed. We need to get a guilt offering. Now listen, this is amazing to me because these priests don't know anything about the law of Moses. And you're going to see that in a second. They don't know anything about the specifications of what you're supposed to do for a guilt offering. But what they do know is when you've done something wrong to offend God, it's not enough to correct the wrong. You also have to acknowledge that you're guilty before him. So they took the, the Ark of the Covenant out of the land of Israel. They're saying, look, you got to return it. That's true. We got to stop doing this horrible thing. But at the same time, we've got a guilt offering that we have to give to him. You got to come to God with some form of guilt offering. You can't just say, okay, God, I did something bad and then correct it without recognizing before him that you're guilty. So this is what they say to him. Now, look, now this is amazing. They said, okay, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? Now listen, that question is the question of every religion on the face of the earth. That question. Yes, I know I'm guilty before God. What shall I give to God for my guilt? Everybody on the planet, everybody in the city, everybody in this room has stuff that they're guilty for right now. You got stuff going on in your conscience right now. And there, there are multiple ways many of us deal with our guilt. Now, I've got a friend, a little friend, and when she feels guilty about something, she goes, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not going to say, I didn't do anything wrong. She, you know, puts up her little nose. I didn't do anything wrong. Right? One way of us dealing with our guilt before God and each other is to deny that we did anything wrong. Any of us are like that. This is why we have whole movements in our nation um, that are dedicated to just, let me put it out this way. The majority of folks that are living in the homosexual lifestyle do not want to get married. That's a fact. Why then are, is there so much of a push for gay marriage? Because if you validate that lifestyle, then you can say, okay, it's, this is not wrong. As men and women get married, men and men get married. Okay, then I'm not doing anything wrong. One of the ways we deal with our guilt is to deny the fact that we're guilty in the first place. So listen to me. Even if you don't believe in God or you claim you don't believe in God, one of the ways that people deal with their guilt is to act like they're... This is one of the reasons people don't believe in God, they say, because they've got guilt, yeah? 
Here's the second way we, we deal with our guilt. Second way we deal with our guilt is to work it off. We're going to see that in a second. You're going to work off your guilt. So I did something wrong. And I apologize. But I've got to continuously work off my guilt. I've got to come to cell 53 and make sandwiches. I feel guilty. I did something wrong. I'm going to make sandwiches for people. That'll make it up to God. That'll equal it out. Oh, I did something wrong. Summer's coming around. I'll do a barbecue. I'll do some good stuff. That'll equal it out. I won't be guilty anymore. It says, what are we going to do for the guilt offering? See, Romans 1 tells us, Romans 1 through 3 tells us that you don't even need a Bible to know a few things. Number one, you don't need a Bible to know that there's a God in heaven. Number two, you don't need a Bible to know that he's righteous. Number three, you don't need a Bible to know that you are wrong at some level. Everybody knows that there's something wrong with us. So these people, they don't have a Bible. They don't have Moses. They don't have the Ten Commandments. But they know that Yahweh is a God who they sinned against, who they are now guilty, and there has to be a price paid. Here's what you do need a Bible for. Or, or special revelation, as uh, my theologians here would, would understand. You need a Bible to know what exactly God requires for your guilt. See, that's the big mystery. This is the answer that every single human being on the face of the earth needs answered. You know, Shakespeare wrote this play, you know, uh, Macbeth. And this man and his wife, they conspire to kill King Duncan. And it's one of the most horrifying scenes in all the literature, in my opinion. The, the wife who took part in the conspiracy, they've got her walking around in the middle of the night, washing her hands. She's consistently washing her hands over and over again. And you overhear the wife saying, man, I didn't know that blood could stain a hand so much. So this is months away from the event after she had taken part in this murder, and she's up at night washing her hands, you see guilt so what's so you had all these philosophers come together and say okay what can we do for this lady she's got all this blood on her hands she's washing her hands what can we do to assuage her guilt and essentially the answer was well there are a lot of things that can be done but when you kill a person I mean that's it she's basically sorry there is no answer for that type of sin so we all have this, whether or not you, you kill the person in real life or whatever, but we all have guilt that many of us can't get away from. Now, what is the solution that these people come up with? Let's see. They answer, these are the priests, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Did you catch that? When God was explaining to Moses what the guilt offering was, what was the sacrifice that God commanded for a guilt offering? Was it gold and silver? It was ultimately it was his son, but in the Old Testament, it was an animal sacrifice. You know, the book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Right? Listen to me. God is a cajillionaire. He does not need gold. He doesn't need animals either. What is being communicated with a blood sacrifice? Here's what's being communicated. With a guilt offering as a blood sacrifice is that what I did, God, deserves my life. 
Like, I deserve the death penalty for what I did. That's what a blood sacrifice communicates. When you see that animal dying and gasping for its breath because its throat has been slit, you're realizing, man, this is a high cost of sin. But instead of coming with an animal sacrifice, remember, these are pagans, they come to God with gold. And they make, now, now this is unbelievable to me, they make golden tumors and, and, and golden rats. Okay? Uh, this is very awkward. Now, if anybody that knows me, I don't really like talking about uh, bodily things of that nature. Okay? But it's in the text, so... And it's my week to preach. Listen! <laughs> You're coming to the God of heaven, and you make gold-plated hemorrhoids, basically. You say, okay, God, look, we came, we stole your ark. We put our, your ark in our horrible pagan temple. We completely and totally dishonored you. So you dishonored us with hemorrhoids. And so what we're going to do to make things even is to come at you with golden hemorrhoids and golden rats. Now, there, there are many commentators that said the rats were running all through their city along with the hemorrhoids. is one of the plagues. <laughs> this is what you're worth, God. Golden hemorrhoids and golden rats. Here you are. Now listen to me. I think it should go without speaking that, that that would be offensive to God, right? But God also had said you are not to make any carved images in your worship of me. He said that in Leviticus. But again, these are pagans. They don't know. They don't know. Now here's, here's the crazy thing to me. Why does God include details like this in the Bible? I always say, when you're reading your Bible, God is not gossiping about these people. He's showing you yourself. Anything that you do to try to make things right with God on your own power is a golden hemorrhoid and golden rats. It is just as ridiculous and silly and offensive. But here's the deal. It was gold. Now, gold is precious, is it not? Yes. So, ex on the exterior, it's precious. Look, on the exterior, your good deeds are good deeds. I'm not saying they're not good. You know, making a sandwich, that's good. You know, helping an old lady across the street, that's good. But if you try to bring that to God as a guilt offering, that's when it becomes offensive. So, the gold is a precious, nobody's, nobody's denying that. But it's almost a mockery of God. It is a mockery of God to bring that. And here's the deal. The Philistines were sincerely doing this. They were getting tore up in their country. This was sincere. They weren't trying to mock God. This was sincerity. What does this tell us? You can be sincerely trying to get yourself right with God, but doing it in a way that increases the offense. This is very, very important. One, God explicitly says in his word, he doesn't want carved images. You just read that the reason, the very reason that God destroyed the Israelites in the first place was because they had carved images. This is all human religion, by the way. This is human religion. We did something wrong to God. Let's, let's go and, and fix the problem. 
You know, these golden tumors and the golden rats are an acknowledgement to God in their mind. Look, we know that these, these rats and these tumors are in our city because we sinned against you. Here's something precious from us, and that should settle the score. You're trying to buy God off. You're trying to buy him off. This is religion. Okay, let's keep going. <clears throat> so you must make the images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. Now, Watch this. This is worship. He says, give glory to the God of Israel. And, and the, the most ironic phrase to me in this, it says, he will lighten his hand off of your gods. What he's saying is, Yahweh is beating up our gods. And hopefully this will appease him. Well, here's a $10 million question. Why would you get rid of those other gods and just follow Yahweh? I mean, if this one God is powerful enough to beat up all your other gods, why don't you just get rid of those guys and follow Yahweh? Romans 1 explains to us that people make decisions about God not because they can't be convinced in their minds, but because in their hearts they're going astray. If you follow paganism, the gods of the pagans are eerily similar to human nature. And the way that the pagan gods want to be worshipped are very, very convenient. For example, you had this thing called cult prostitution. And one of the forms of worshipping their gods is you would go to these, uh, to the door of the temple essentially, and you had these cult prostitutes and you would go and, um, you understand, you would meet up with these prostitutes and meeting up and paying for a prostitute was a form of worship of these gods. How, what a convenient way to worship if you were a man. Some forms of worship had to do with getting drugs. You would get literally, you would get high and get in an altered state of consciousness and then you would, that was part of your worship. As a matter of fact, I was just in Jamaica on a work assignment and uh, in Rastafarianism, you know, Bob Marley, everybody thinks Bob Marley's cool. All right, listen. One of the forms of worship in Rastafarianism is to smoke weed and get high and connect with God. Well, that's convenient. You see, human religion, on top of creating works righteousness to get to God, the other side of it is we have forms of worship that indulge human inclinations. Now, the Israelites and the Philistines were pretty close to each other. They observed Israelite worship. There wasn't any of that stuff going on in Israelite worship. So if I got rid of my other gods, I would have to follow the law of this God. I wouldn't do that. You see, the logical thing to do would be to get rid of your gods, but we're not just robots. We're not logic machines. We're human beings. There are other things that motivate our decisions. Examine yourself. What really, truly, honestly motivates the things that you decide to do or don't do? Many of us are motivated, many of us make decisions based on whether or not it's going to give us the most pleasure in a given moment, or it agrees with what we want to do. 
And so they're not even considering. There's no conversation of maybe we should change the state religion. There's no conversation about that. The only conversation is we are suffering some sort of uh, consequence, and we need to find a, a way to get rid of our consequence. This God is clearly more powerful than our gods. Uh, we're not going to change our gods at all because then we'd have to completely change our lifestyle. But we're not going to do that. We're going to go and find a way to get rid of him so that we can go back and worship our gods. We gods for sure, but we want to continue to worship the gods that we have. People don't make decisions about God only because of their minds. It is a heart issue. So if you pull back and think about the state of our nation, for example, you think about abortion or corporate greed or gay marriage or whatever it is, if you believe that the ultimate solution to those problems is Bernie Sanders or Ted Cruz, you are no different from the Philistines or the Israelites. I am no different. Look, look, we got, we've got serious issues in our nation. You're not going to argue people into the illogical reason for figuring out, oh, wait a second, this is destroying our country. The thing about this, we do things in our country that's completely self-destructive. Now, that doesn't make any sense in any way, shape, or form. We live lifestyles that are completely self-destructive. Why are we still continuing in that? Here's the point of why I'm harping on that. Because this shows us the necessity for prayer. If, if our decisions on God or to follow God were based solely on a mind issue, then I, could, I would have the most converts ever. Because I'm an awesome debater. But that's not why people make decisions for Christ or not. I'm an awesome debater and a horrible prayer. You know, if the situation is a heart issue and only God can reach into the heart, then what I need to do is to pray without ceasing for our city. You got family members that are completely off the rails, doing crazy stuff, being completely self-destruction, and, and they know that the God you worship is a true God. Why don't they follow him? Because they got heart issues, man. Are you going to argue with your family? You're going to pray. Really? Why don't we pray more? Is it because we don't recognize that it's a heart issue, or is it because we don't really believe that God could change a person? You know, we got this uh, nice young lady, Janet Mills, the attorney general, who's, who's picking on some of us, right? And uh, Brian was talking about it a couple days ago, about praying for her. We didn't even think about, oh, we got to pray for this woman. And not only pray for her, but pray in faith that something can actually happen. Well, these Philistines aren't thinking about that. They don't really care about following the true God. Now, this guy, the priest is saying, give glory to the God of Israel. Worship him. Right? And they're doing this. They're giving glory to the God of Israel in a way that mocks and insults him. But they're so far away from God that they don't even know that their worship is an act of mockery. This should scare everybody in this place. Where is your heart when you're worshiping? It's possible that you could be giving glory to God in a way that's mocking him. This is the reason that God told the people in Malachi 
Y'all ought to just close the doors of the temple. Why? Because they had half-hearted worship. They could care less about God truly. They're just going through the motions. And God's like, look, man, I'm not going to let you mock me. Just close the door of the temple. So this is a warning to us, man. You make sure when we're giving glory to God, we're actually truly giving glory to God. And we're not being like these Philistines. Now, now watch what he says. Verse 6. Why? Should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cow- Well, I'll talk about that later. Now watch this. So here come these priests and these priests said, listen, don't you remember what God did to the Egyptians? God destroyed the Egyptians and it says right there, don't harden your heart. The, the, the pagan Philistine priests are telling their people, do not harden your heart. As they're sending this uh, mockery to God, which shows that they had the hardened hearts. You know that you're in trouble when your religious leaders are hard-hearted. You have a problem. We got a serious problem. These people knew... Now, here's, here's something interesting. This shows us that they knew what God had done to the Egyptians. These people are hundreds of years removed from Moses, but it was still in the local memory of all those people about what God had done to the Egyptians. You know, when I was a little kid, I actually felt sorry for Pharaoh. I'm like, man, God really picked on Pharaoh really hard. But look what he had done. He had said, I'm doing this to exalt my name. So here are these Philistines who still remember what God had done to the Egyptians. And what they're saying is, let's not harden our hearts like God did to the Egyptians. Basically, here's the argument that the, the priest is making. What the priest is saying is, look, God did all this destruction. And, they, and so because of that, Pharaoh sent away the Israelites. Now God's doing more destruction, so what we should do is send away the ark. So he's trying to convince them, don't harden your hearts, send away the ark. Well, is that God's true intention for people? When you're in a bad situation or you're in trouble, is God's real message to all of us, hey, don't harden your hearts, avoid a consequence. Is that God's, is that God's intention? No! God's intention is, yes, don't harden your heart. Seek me. Not relief from the consequence. This is what we do. Anytime we get in trouble, we think we're being religious because we want to get out of the consequence. We think we're being righteous because we want to stop behavior that gets us out of the consequence. You're missing the point. The consequence is is designed to bring you to a point where you can get closer to God. He wants to be sought. If you are stopping your bad behavior, your drinking, your alcohol, your drugs, your woman, whatever, if you're only stopping that because you don't want to face a consequence, you have a hardened heart. You catch that. If you are only stopping your bad behavior because all you care about is the consequence and you do not care about getting closer to God, that means you have a hard heart. Any criminal can go to jail and say, well, this sucks, I'm in jail. I need to stop doing this so this doesn't continue to happen to me. But that does not mean that he loves the judge. He doesn't love the judge because he stops robbing bank. 
He stops robbing banks because he wants to get out of jail. Well, as Chris read to us, God is in the business of making sons and daughters, right? Sons and daughters, that's what God wants. So when you face a consequence, yes, stop the behavior so you can stop facing the consequence, but don't stop there. If you only stop there, it proves you just have self-interest, which is what these, these Philistines are doing. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. So this, this is a test. These two cows, tie them up, but take their babies from them. Now, those of you, how? We're a farmer. I'm not a farmer. I grew up in the hood. What happens when you take a mommy cow away from her calves? She will do anything to get back to the calves. She'll do anything to get back to the calves, right? So, say again? Go through a barbed wire fence. All right. So watch this. They're going to go. They'll do anything. They'll go through a barbed wire fence, right? Watch this. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you're returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he, Yahweh, who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not by his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So basically what they're doing is they're, they're, they set the cart, the ark on this cart. They set these two cows on there. They took the cows away. And what they're saying is the only way this cart would go to this town, Beshemesh, is by supernatural means. Because all things being equal, those cows should be going after their young. They shouldn't be traveling to Beshemesh. So there should be some invisible hand guiding them. But notice what they say. They say, if that happens, then we'll know that God did it. Two seconds ago, they were saying, we need to send this thing away. Don't harden your hearts. And now they're saying, we need to put God through one final test. He's got to jump through one final hoop, and then we'll know it's him. The fact that their false god, Dagon, got beaten up and destroyed, not good enough. The fact that he afflicted all of their towns with, with uh, tumors, not good enough. No, no, no. This is a final test that will determine whether or not God is real. That this really happened. Now look, if God wouldn't have let that happen, they would have ch chalked all the rest of that up to chance. Think about that. Just after they got done saying, don't harden your heart, they show us that they have got the hardest hearts ever. You know, sometimes I talk to people. They say, I don't believe in God. I want proof. I say, okay, what would constitute actual proof that God exists? They'd say, well, just, you know, proof. I say, you realize that, you know, you're, you're in an ordered universe? You know, we're a certain distance away from the sun? You know, we're, you, you think that just happened by chance? Yes, it happened by chance. I said, okay, if a guy appeared to you in the sky and said, Joey, I'm God, would that be proof? He said, well, No. Because it could be some space alien who knows what I think God's like and is doing that. I said, right. So what is your actual proof? At the end of the conversation, he said, well, there's basically nothing that could be done to prove it to me. Exactly. Exactly. These guys were willing to say the entire thing was a giant coincidence, even after all that craziness. 
Even now, think about it, even after they said we're going to set up a guilt offering to Yahweh, they still were willing to say the whole thing was a coincidence. You go farther and farther into belief, but there's still that part of you that wants to doubt so that you can go back to living the way that you want to live. See, a lot of times people say, oh man, you know, you Christians, you just believe in this fairy tale um, because you can't deal with life. And what this is showing us is that people doubt because they don't want to deal with a holy God. Yes, it is convenient for me to believe that somebody's up there watching over me and taking care of me. But it's also convenient for you to believe that nobody's over there watching you, taking care of you. Okay, now, verse 10. The men did so, and the two milk cows, and yoked them to the cart, and shot up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart, and the box of the golden mice, and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, by the way, just a quick, if you were to go to Joshua 21, you don't have to do it now, but basically when they were dividing up the land, tribes were basically allotted certain portions of land. Do you know which tribe inherited the land of Beth Shemesh? Well, Israel, but among the 12 tribes, which, which tribes inherited Beth Shemesh? No. 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 The Levites. Now, why is it significant that the Levites inherited the tribe of Beth Shemesh? They were in control of the ark. They were priests. They were in control of the ark. They were priests. They were in control of the ark. What do you got, Hal? Yeah, they, they didn't work for the land. They inherited Beth Shemesh, according to Joshua 21. Okay, what did you say? They were in charge of the ark. They, the ark. they were in charge of taking care of the ark, and they understood the sacrificial system, right? Now look, your normal Israelite had a better shot of understanding what God wanted with sacrifice and offering, right? But the Levites especially would know. Right? So when these guys show up, when this, when this ark shows up, we're going to know immediately. What do you expect they're going to do with these golden tumors and all the rest of it? They're going to go, oh, this is horrible. They're going to throw it away, right? Right? That's what they're going to do. Because they're Levites. You know, look, you know, what the Philistines did was terrible, but they're pagans. Okay? The Philistines are pagans. So we can kind of give them a pass. They didn't understand the God of Israel. Surely this thing goes into a Levite town. They're not going to. All right, well, let's just keep reading. All right. Now, watch this. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. So far, so good. Okay? There's nothing wrong with rejoicing at the ark. That's good. Let's keep reading. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And look at verse 15. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them up on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. Now, again, we see Levites in this town. It would be, that, that makes a complete sense. Uh, but here's, here's what's interesting. 
What do they do with the five golden images or, or the, the images in the rats? What do they do? They set it up on a great stone. Uh, God had told them he didn't want any carved images. So why are these Levites setting it up on this stone? What is the point of that? Why would you do that? Now again, we say, look, man, the Philistines, they're pagans. But here comes God's people, and you are a specialist in what God wants for worship. And instead of getting rid of this stuff, you set it up on a stone so everybody in the town can go see it. And yes, at some level, you, you, you got to think to yourself, man, these people are really, truly far away from God as a people. When you're specialists in worship, are helping you in false worship, you got a serious problem. Here's the other thing. God only allowed for um, male cows to be sacrificed as a guilt offering, not female cows. Now again, that's getting a little bit technical, but listen, these are Levites. They only had one job. They only had one job. Now at one level you might say, yeah, man, but I mean, you know, why are you getting so technical? It's a good day. It's a day to celebrate, man. The ark came back. What did they do with the ark? What did they do with the ark? What does it say? <clears throat> Let's keep reading. These are the gold tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Eklon. By the way, all these villages of the Philistines are going to be um, recounted again throughout the book of Samuel. For example, Gath was the hometown of who? Goliath, okay? Goliath would probably be a little kid when this happened, right? Um, so here's the lords of the Philistines saying, we're going to set up these offerings, God, for each of our towns. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the Philistines and the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages, the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Now, they set up the ark and those five golden thingamajigs on this stone. So the ark is standing next to these five crazy things that these people had, had put together. Now, how is that different from the Philistines? There's no difference between the Israelites and the Philistines at this point. Still. Now... I pointed out the fact that they had done these things contrary to the law of God. And at some point, people might say, yeah, man, you're just nitpicking. We should just be happy. The ark, look, man, the ark's been gone for seven months. Seven months, the ark's been gone. It would be awesome. The thing is coming back. You know what that means? That means God is coming back into the land. Because in their mind, the ark was the carrier of the glory of God, right? So the ark is coming back into the land, man. You should just lighten up. Well, let's look what happens. Verse 19. And he struck, this is God, some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. So here is the ark. Let's, let's go back to the journey. It starts off in Shiloh among the people of Israel. They try to use it like a good luck charm. Then it gets moved to the Philistines. The Philistines believe that they have overcome Yahweh, but God shows them that they are weak compared to him, and he starts wreaking havoc in their land. Then after that, 
They are so in trouble that they say, we're going to send this thing back to the Israelites. It goes back to the Israelites. It goes into a village where there's a bunch of Levites. The Levites, who are experts in the law and the sacrificial system, should have known to get rid of the, of the, of the golden mice and the golden tumors. And they should have known that the Ark of the Covenant was a holy thing that they were not supposed to be looking at. There were very specific things that they were supposed to do with the Ark of the Covenant to take care of it. John. I thought it was 50,000 and 3 score 10 men was Yep. 50,000. Yeah. It depends on your translation. Most translations, most modern translations would say uh, 70. Earlier translations like the KJV would say 50,000. Well, that's uh, quite a difference. Yep. It is. Uh... One of the reasons for the difference in translation is that it's highly unlikely that there were even 50,000 people in Beth Shemesh, much less 50,000 people to be dead. So most translations go with the, the 70 number. Now, here's the question. God, now it does say, it does imply that many of the Philistines died because, of the, because the ark was there, right? But this is, this is, this is, there's no even tumor thing happening. God goes straight to the death penalty for these people. Why? Why does it seem that God seems to be harsher on the Israelites than he is with the Philistines? You were supposed to know better. What does Jesus say? To much is given, much is what? Required. So here we sit in America. Now look, um, I agree with, with Barack Hussein Obama. We are no longer a Christian nation. That's not good. Because here's why. Even though we as a nation have turned our back on God, we still have access to the God's word. We still have access to uh, television stations that are dedicated to the preaching of the word. There's a church on every street corner in America. So the fact that we as a nation have turned our back on God does not absolve us from the fact that we know better. We're not some nation over there in the jungles who've never heard the, uh, of the scripture. God is going to hold us accountable as a nation due to the fact that we have knowledge of God that we ought to be practicing. You know, many of us, we got study Bibles and Bible software programs and all that. Read them. But here's the thing. Everything you read, every commentary, every Greek and Hebrew thing that you can pull up and figure out increases your accountability. It increases your privilege, but it also increases your accountability. There were very specific ways that the Ark of the Covenant should have been handled. And instead of handling it correctly, they set it up as basically some museum, as an artifact in a museum. And what that did, they cost the lives of 70, at least, of their countrymen. So now, when the Philistines were faced... With the punishment of God because of the misuse of the ark, what did they do? They said, we need to get this thing out of here. Now let's see what the Israelites do when they are faced with the punishment of God. Let's see. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Very good question. Because really, that has been the lesson of the ark since the very beginning. The lesson of the ark is that God is holy. So when you're in a battle with the Philistines and you're losing, you don't use the ark of the covenant as some good luck charm. Why? God is holy. 
and when you do that, you are violating his holiness. When it goes into the land of the Philistines and they set it next to Dagon, what is God communicating? Hey, I'm holy. Dagon bows before me. What does holy mean? It means set apart. I'm in a completely and totally different league than your false god, Dagon. And when he starts wreaking havoc over their horrible little city and humiliating them with these tumors, what is God communicating? Hey, guys, I'm holy. I'm unlike any and every god. I am holy. And what they do is they say, we're dealing with the holy god. We've got to get rid of him. So they send him away to Beth Shemesh to people who should know better. And they misuse God. And 70 of them, at least, die. What is God communicating? Hey, I am holy. And the guys finally get it. Now here's the question. Why does it have to take some extreme consequence for these guys to finally realize that God is holy? Like when the ark was coming back into your um, vicinity in your town, couldn't you have recognized then that God was holy? Here's the question. Why does it take us all these extreme circumstances in our life to realize, wait a second, I shouldn't mess around with God. Many of us are like that. We push God and push him and dare him to punish us until we finally recognize that he is not a God to be messed with. Many of us have all these different gods that we put beside God. You know, it's like uh, Chris was talking about. Oh, you got a relationship. The relationship becomes your God. That person becomes your job, your God. Your job becomes your God. Your finances become your God. Your political whatever becomes your God. And you go, look, I'm not saying that I don't want to worship God at all. I mean, think about it. The Philistines didn't throw away the Ark of the Covenant. They put it in their temple. These guys, they didn't throw away the Ark. They set it up on a rock, man. We're still cool with Yahweh. We're just going to worship Yahweh along with other people, other gods. It's cool. I mean, I'm a Christian. It's just, you know, I worship my relationship. That person, man, you know, I'm going to worship them next to, you know, God, you know, my daughter asked me last night, we were getting out of the car. She said, Daddy, is it bad if I love God as much as you? Yes. It's bad. And people go, oh, man, that's cute. A little girl loves her dad. Well, that's what these people were doing. But what that said to me was, man, even at a young age, we've got idolatry in our hearts. And sometimes we romanticize idolatry. You know, most people would look at that and say that that was a cute interaction. Well, that interaction scared me to death. So I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm not always going to be around her. There's going to be another daddy in her life that, that then gets equal to God. You know, many people, you know, you have your kids. You just have kids. It's your first kid. Ooh. And your kid becomes equal in your relationship than in your relationship with God. And they were putting... God next to Dagon. They weren't, they weren't saying that God wasn't cool. These people worship multiple gods. And the idea of holiness means that there's nobody beside him. That's what holiness means. That he's completely and totally set apart. That he's over and above every other, and there's nothing or no one even in the same category or breath as him. So they finally asked that question. What are we going to do with this holy God? Here's the only answer. Worship him. And him alone. 
No matter what consequence you're dealing with, worship him. That's the answer. Now, what do they do? What's their solution? Well, let's see. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go away, up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. They reacted the exact same way as the Philistines did. Worse. Because they acknowledged the holiness of God. And then once they acknowledged that God is holy, they said, we got to get him out of here. <laughs> Which is the exact same thing the Philistines did. Man, so you, here we are with our study Bibles and our Bible software. We know all this craziness. And then, you know, consequence comes into your life. And the only thing we're worried about is getting out of the consequence. This is our nation. This is our city. This is our church. This is me. This is you. Here's the final thing I will say. The message of the Ark of the Covenant through all those cities is two things. Three things. One, God is holy. There's nobody beside him. There's nobody above him. Number two, We've sinned against this great God, and there are consequences. We cannot come to God without a guilt offering. But here's the deal. The guilt offering aren't the, the mice and the tumors, and it's not even uh, a bull or whatever. What is the guilt offering? Jesus. You know, Brian just read it. Isaiah 53. It actually uses, the Hebrew word for guilt offering is asham. Do you know that in Isaiah 53 it says, when he makes his soul, this is God talking about Jesus, it says God made Jesus' soul an asham for us, a guilt offering for us. Jesus is our guilt offering. Yes, we've all violated the Ark of the Covenant. And yes, you can't just come to God empty-handed, but here's the deal. You've got to come to God with a guilt offering. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. And here's the final thing. Once you have accepted that you are guilty before God and that there is an offering made for you, the ultimate issue is God wants you to seek Him. Not your priests, your pastor, your politicians. He wants you to seek Him. He doesn't want you to run from the consequence. He wants you to seek Him. That's the point of the consequence. If we don't, all we're doing is setting ourselves up for another consequence in another form. Simple as that. You know, the scripture says, don't be like the horse of the mule who can only be guided by bit and bridle unless it won't come to you. Don't be like that. All right. First time in, in, in a couple months. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word, God. God, help us. We're just like the Philistines. We're just like the Israelites. We're just like the Levites, God. But you are so patient. You were patient with those Philistines. You didn't eradicate their whole nation. You were patient with the Israelites. You, you, you didn't eradicate the whole nation. And they're here to this day, the Jewish people are. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. God, thank you for being patient with our nation. All the, the knowledge that we have of you and your word and your ways and all the good things you've done for our nation since the beginning. We've forgotten all of it, God. Have mercy on our nation. God, have mercy on me and my house, and have mercy on all my friends. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53, proclaiming the kingdom of God for the sake of the city. 
For more resources, visit cell53.com.